Hello everyone, my name is Haley Elizabeth and if you don't know who I am, this is my podcast called Behind You where I sit down once a week and I talk about all things true crime ranging from murders, cults, disappearances, all the way to the biggest drug bust in history, the biggest bank heist in history, all things true crime. So if you're interested in any of that, you can subscribe on the YouTube channel and watch the visual version every Wednesday or you can head over to Spotify, Apple, wherever you can find podcasts every Tuesday for the audio version. But in today's case, we are going to be talking about the case of Eileen Warnos, and there is a lot to get through, so let's just hop right into it. Eileen Warnos was born on February 29th of 1956 in Rochester, Michigan. Eileen's mom was only 16 years old when she had Eileen, so because of this, she wasn't really able to take care of her by herself, and this is when Eileen was adopted at just four years old by her mom's parents, so Eileen's grandparents named Diane and Leo. But although she was adopted by her grandparents, unfortunately, she still did have a very rough upbringing. Her and her brother Keith, who was 11 months older than her, were constantly getting abused by their grandparents, more specifically their grandfather. There was a lot of abuse going on between the grandfather and the children. They were getting beaten very regularly every single day, and there were also allegations of incest going on during this time. And just to give you an example of the type of abuse that would go on in this household, the grandfather had a sauna in their house, and if Eileen did something that he didn't approve of or if she just got in trouble, he would lock her in the sauna for hours and just turn the heat all the way up and just force her to sit in there. She would go through this sort of abuse when she was very, very young, and I mean, if you are very, very young, like six years old, and you're put into a sauna, obviously you're going to be crying and freaking out, and so her crying and freaking out while being in this hot sauna basically just made her feel even worse. As I said, she would also get regularly beaten by her grandfather if she were to do something as little as spilling something on the floor. Eileen's grandfather also was not just physically abusive, but he was also verbally abusive as well. He would constantly tell Eileen things such as she is worthless, a mistake, and she should have never been born. And with her grandfather being the catalyst or the ringleader for most of this abuse, the grandmother mostly just drank all the time, so she wouldn't try to step in and help Eileen or Keith. She just kind of sat back and watched it happen and drank a lot. But since the grandfather was the ringleader of most of the abuse, this is where Eileen's hatred for men mostly stemmed from. She was taught from a very young age that violence is always the end answer and if someone does something terrible to you, you have to respond in violence in order to make that person feel how you feel. And she also just felt like a very terrible person at a very young age because she was constantly being told things like she should have never been born and that she's worthless and so she grew up to have these same exact ideologies about herself, thus bringing her self-confidence way down. And because of her grandfather's actions towards her and also her birth father not being in her life at all, she had the mindset at a very young age that men were the enemy and and this later in life turned her to be having just no empathy for men at all. 
and then at age 11, after being very, very badly neglected by her grandparents and every time she was shown any sort of attention, it was always abusive attention, this led her to not go to school, she didn't have many friends, and that is when she started to go into sex work. At just 11 years old, she would trade her body in for a pack of cigarettes and cigarettes was a way for her to kind of release all of the stress and tension that she was holding in, which is very, very traumatic and it honestly makes me sick to my stomach just saying that because she was just an 11-year-old girl. So she continued throughout this lifestyle until she was 14 and that is when she grew pregnant. But since she was only 14 years old, she was forced to put her baby up for adoption straight afterwards, similar to when Eileen's mother had her at 16. She was forced to put her child up for adoption. And so the same thing happened to a 14-year-old Eileen and her baby. But in this situation, Eileen really wanted to keep the child, but the grandfather forced her to give it up for adoption, thus just kind of fueling Eileen's hatred for men and seeing men as the enemy and shortly after this things just kept on getting a lot worse for Eileen because as I said earlier the grandmother was a very heavy drinker she was drinking all the time and so due to her heavy drinking she actually ended up getting liver cancer and passing away and this was a very big hit on to Eileen and her brother Keith and also her grandfather as well her grandfather did not handle this very very well at all, but instead, as a way for him to cope with all of his sadness and distress, his only expression was to blame it all on Eileen and to just take all of his anger and stress out on Eileen. So although the grandmother had died of liver cancer, the grandfather would constantly blame Eileen for her death. He would tell her things like she had no choice but to drink due to Eileen's actions and due to Eileen's stressing everyone out and so all of these arguments inevitably led to Eileen being kicked out of the house at just 15 years old and after Eileen was kicked out of the house she was left completely homeless she had absolutely no one to go to she couldn't go to her parents she couldn't go to her grandparents she never really went to school or anything so she had no friends and she also didn't have a job so whilst being homeless this this is just when she started sleeping in an old car that she found and continuing to do sex work in exchange for food or cigarettes. But one person that she was still very, very close to was her brother, Keith. Keith and her had a very close relationship. They went through everything together. Keith was also getting abused, same with Eileen. It was alleged that through Keith's friends and what they said, they believed that there was incest going on between Eileen and Keith. So this could also be another reason why Eileen felt very close to Keith and why he was like 
the only good male figure that she had in her life. So when she was kicked out, it was during the summertime, and so Michigan, if you're not familiar, gets very, very cold winters, and she knew that she couldn't stay in Michigan forever, especially with how cold it was going to be. So that is when she decided to hitchhike over a thousand miles all the way to Colorado just for a little bit of warmer weather. And then two years later at 17, that is when Eileen would get arrested for the very first time for driving under the influence and disorderly conduct with a 22 caliber gun. And then in 1976, at the age of 20, at this time, she is still homeless. She's still kind of, you know, sleeping in old cars, couch surfing off of people's homes, and she felt like she couldn't do the cold winters anymore. So that is when she hitchhiked all the way from Colorado to Daytona Beach, Florida. And then shortly after she arrives in Florida, and that is when she meets and marries 69-year-old Louis Grotz and Lewis was said to have a lot of money. He was the president of the yacht club, so he had lots of boats, he had lots of cars, and a big house, and it was said that this is truly what um, Eileen was attracted to. It was his money. But the marriage did not last long because it was a terrible marriage. Eileen was said to be a very violent person and would physically abuse Lewis and would even beat him with his own walking stick. Lewis's friends also say that Eileen was very demanding and whenever she would hang around with him and his friends, she was very loud and would frequently say a lot of out-of-pocket or unhinged things. And then just a few weeks after the couple got married, that is when Lewis put up a restraining order against Eileen as well as getting an annulment. And if you guys don't know what the difference between a divorce and an annulment is, because I didn't even know there was like a huge difference, but from what I have read, a divorce is basically where a couple ends their marital status, but on paper, it still shows that at some point the two were married. Whereas an annulment is not only ending the marital status of the couple, but also arguing that there was something legally invalid about the marriage in the first place. Therefore, when they file this annulment, it acts as if the marriage had never happened in the first place and that the couple were just never married at all. And so I felt like that was very important to say. It just really showed how deeply scared Lewis was of Eileen to the point where he didn't even want to be associated with her name anymore. He didn't want to have anything to do with her. And so then shortly after this divorce, Eileen was left on the streets again. And that is when, unfortunately, she had received the news that her 21-year-old brother Keith had passed away due to lung cancer. Now, this took a very big toll on Eileen because, as I said, Eileen and Keith, that was like her best friend. That was the only positive male figure that she had in her life or just positive figure in general. And this really took a toll on Eileen to the point where she grew very, very depressed. She wasn't eating. She was homeless. She had no money. And the only way to get money was to sell her body on the streets and so Eileen was just in a very very vulnerable and dark place at this point. 
She ended up receiving $10,000 from her brother's death, but she spent it all within weeks on guns, cars, and motel rooms. But once she got a taste of having a large sum of money, that is when she decided that she just wanted more money. So she stopped doing sex work on the streets and instead shifted her career to armed robbery. And then in 1981, at the age of 25, she was arrested on the account for stealing $35 and a pack of cigarettes at a convenience store, and she only got one year in jail for it. But instead of this being sort of a wake-up call for Eileen to start bettering herself, to start sobering up, she instead just decided to go about her old bad habits. She continued to get arrested multiple times for driving under the influence, assault, battery, and robbery. There was also one incident in particular where she was doing sex work and once she had the guy alone in the motel room, she had locked the motel room door, put a gun to his head, and told him to give her all of his money. And then in 1986, at the age of 30, that is when Eileen Warnos would meet a woman by the name of Tyria Moore, or Ty. Eileen would go on to say that the couple met at this biker bar in Daytona Beach, Florida called The Last Resort, and she says that the moment she saw Tyria, she just completely fell in love. It was love at first sight, and same thing with Tyria. Tyria felt that Eileen was her soulmate, and the couple absolutely loved each other and would do anything for each other. Eileen would also go on to say that she knew very quickly into this relationship with Tyria that she wanted to spend the rest of her life with her. And the owner of the Last Resort's biker bar has said that he remembers a couple of instances where Tyria and Eileen would come in. He said that Eileen was very loud and if Ty wanted another beer, she would sit on the pool table and would demand that someone get Ty another beer. He also described the couple to be very loud and raunchy. They would come into the bar and just play pool and drink beer the whole time. And during this time, Eileen would continue to do sex work and other things in order to get money for them both. And also, Eileen loved to spoil Tyria. Anything that Tyria wanted, Eileen would work her hardest to get that thing for Tyria. And then on November 30th of 1989, at the age of 33, that is when Eileen and Tyria were living together and they sort of became partners in crime. They would both commit very petty crimes in order to maintain their luxurious lifestyle. They would commit armed robbery. They would steal from people's cars and break into cars. And they were basically just doing a bunch of small crimes to get quick cash together. Until the more and the more they would commit these crimes, the more they would feel more excited to commit these crimes. Because the crimes that they were doing, such as robbery or sneaking into someone's house or someone's car. It was a very adrenaline-filled experience. And so due to this, the frequency and the danger that came with these crimes would upscale to where they were committing these crimes multiple 
multiple times a day, just endangering themselves more and more. And with the frequency of these crimes, they also became a lot more forceful. And so this is when they started to own a couple of guns so that when they did commit their robberies, they would have some sort of weapon on themselves. It was said by Eileen that in a typical day, due to their crimes, they could make anywhere from two to $400 each day. Until one day, Eileen was doing her sex work on the side of a highway, and that is when she was picked up by 51-year-old Richard Mallory. Richard owned an electrical repair shop and had been divorced for many, many years, and he was very vocal to a lot of his co-workers about his engagement in sex workers as well as how much money he had and so again this attracted Eileen a lot when he was bragging about how much money he was making and so on the night that Richard had picked up Eileen off of the I-75 highway um, near Daytona Beach, Florida, that is when the two of them drove to a secluded location and even to this day no one really knows why this happened. At some point, Eileen grew very angry with Richard. There was a debacle of some sort between Eileen and Richard where Eileen pulled out her nine shot revolver and shot Richard in the head four times. From his car, she took a 35mm camera, a radar detector, and her and Tyria the next day went out and pawned off those items in order to get money. And later, later on, like many, many years later, in a documentary called The Life and Death of a Serial Killer, Eileen Warnos was actually in this documentary, and when she was asked exactly why she killed Richard Mallory, because as I said, no one really knew what happened or why she did what she did. Her response was that she killed Richard Mallory because their rent was due that day and she needed some extra cash. Two weeks later, Richard's body was found and no one knew who had killed him because everything in the cars, such as like fingerprints or any fresh DNA, were decomposed at that point. And with it being the 80s, the fingerprint technology just wasn't as good as it is now. So the police really couldn't find a person or a motive that committed this crime. And even to this day, no one knows the exact timeline of events as to what made Eileen take that step to kill Richard because, as I said, there had been so many times where her and Tyria had committed armed robbery to where they would just threaten people with a gun, but this specific day, she had shot Richard. So, no one really knows what sparked her to do that, but unfortunately, it would not be the last time she killed someone. Eileen, given her past, not only had a hatred for men, but she also learned at a very young age that violence equals power from all of the times that her grandfather would abuse her, and that was his way of showing that he had power over her. And now that she is in possession of this gun, she feels as if she has power over men instead of men having power over her. And so this was a sort of feeling that gave her a high and it was a high that she wanted to keep on feeling. 
So then on May 19th of 1990, at 34 years old, that is when she was picked up on the same exact highway, I-75, by 43-year-old David Spears. Her and David Spears had pulled off to the side of the road onto a secluded area for Eileen to perform her services, but as the both of them were undressing, that is when it was said that Eileen walked out of the passenger side of the car, walked around to the driver's side window, and that is when she shot David Spears in the head six times. And then shortly after she shot David, she went into his car and grabbed a couple of his things and gave it off to Tyria so that she could pawn off these items in order to get extra money. And this sort of became the beginning of the two girls' routine. So Eileen would go out and kill these men. And Tyria even said in court later on that she was aware of the murders going on, but she didn't didn't say anything because she was scared of Eileen, but on the contrary to when Eileen was speaking about it, Eileen would go on to say that Tyria knew everything that was going on. She knew every single person that Eileen was killing and who she planned on killing, and every time she would give items to Tyria, Tyria seemed very happy to be pawning off these things and getting a lot of money because as I said, Eileen loved to spoil Tyria. She loved to just give Tyria everything she wanted. So the two girls are sort of saying two different things, but I think those two perspectives are very important to know. So, as I said earlier, Richard Mallory was only shot four times, whereas this time, David Spears was shot six times. Now, shooting someone six times at a close range is what's called overkill to where there is passion behind it because if you are standing like two feet away from someone and you go to shoot them in the head, one shot or maybe two and they would be dead. But in this situation, Eileen kept on shooting and shooting and shooting even though she didn't need to shoot that much. She knew from how close and personal she was that she only needed to shoot this person twice if her intention was to purely kill them. But it seemed that at this point, she was starting to feel some sort of enjoyment or fulfillment by having this power over this man. David Spears was last seen by his son that day as he was leaving for work and so then David Spears went to work and on his way home from work he was going to stop by his ex-wife's house and hang out with her for a little bit but on his way to his ex-wife's house that is when he picked up Eileen and so when his ex-wife found that David had never showed up or he never returned home to his son that is when she called the police and reported David missing. A couple hours later, that is when the police found a abandoned car off to the side of the road, off of the highway, and when they investigated the wooded area, because as I said, David and Eileen had pulled off into a secluded area, so they were looking around in the wooded area, and they found about like 20 feet away from the car was the car's license plate just lying in a bush, as well as a couple of different 
missing items that were from the car. And again, contrary to Richard's situation, Richard's body was found in the car of Richard, but in this situation, David's body was not found in David's car. David's body was found two weeks later, dumped in the woods a few miles away from where the car was found. That means Eileen would have had to shoot David and then drag his body a miles away from the car. And then on May 31st of 1990 in Pasco County, Florida, that is when Eileen would be picked up by 40-year-old Charles Caskerton. Charles had just left visiting his mother and was on his way home to his fiance, and that is when he had picked up Eileen. Eileen and him drove off to a secluded area so that she could perform her services for him. And at this point, Eileen had developed her own routine when it came to how how she killed these men. She would stand by the same exact I-75 highway until someone pulled over, and then when this person pulled over, she would tell them, like, hey, let's go to a more secluded area just to get the guy in a place like a middle of nowhere so that no one could hear the gunshots for a very long while. And so when the two of them get to this secluded area, that is when she starts taking off her clothes and she she encourages the man, whoever is sitting in the driver's seat, to also take off his clothes as well. And as the man is fumbling with his clothes, she would then get out of her passenger side door around to the driver's side and shoot this man in the head. And so she did this same exact routine with Charles and when his body was found, it was found that he was actually shot in the head nine times. So with Richard, it was four times and then with David, it was six times and now it was nine times. So as you can see, she's shooting these men a lot more and more, proving that she sort of has an enjoyment and fulfillment when it comes to committing these crimes. And then after Afterwards, she decided to not just take a couple of items from Charles's car, but instead take his whole entire car. She took his car and his possessions and drove off with his body in the car. She drove a few miles away from the highway, and that is where she dumped his body. And so when she came home to Tyria with this car, they decided to pawn off everything that was in the car, including the car itself thus getting them a lot more money. And then on June 7th of 1990, Eileen went to work on the same exact I-75 highway, and Eileen would say that she would specifically look for men that were driving nice cars, because if they had nice cars, that was insinuating that they had a lot of money in the car. And on this day, that is when she was picked up by 65-year-old Christian missionary Peter Sims. Peter was actually on his way to New Jersey and he was a Christian missionary so he was just trying to spread the word of the Bible and God's word so in his car he had multiple Bibles and he was intending on passing out those Bibles to people along his road trip but for an unknown reason he had picked up Eileen and it's unknown if Peter picked up Eileen because he felt like Eileen was the perfect person to save and if he could help her find God or if Peter genuinely wanted the services of Eileen. 
So at this point, Eileen had killed up to four men and Tyria had pawned off thousands of dollars worth of their things. So the couple was living in a very luxurious lifestyle. They had lots of money, but they were also living in a motel to keep things on the down low. But on July 4th of 1990, that is when a person had reported a car crash that happened in the Ocala National Forest. It was said that on this day, uh, Tyria and Eileen, because it was July 4th, they wanted to go see the fireworks and they decided to take Peter Sims' car. Now, I didn't mention this earlier because when it comes to Peter Sims' case, even to this day, no one really knows what Eileen did to Peter. No one really knows the full story when it comes to Peter Sims. Everything about his story is sort of in the dark. But what we do know is that Eileen did in fact kill Peter and then shortly after take his car. So Tyria and Eileen were in Peter's car and they were driving to go see the fireworks and Tyria was driving but when they were driving on their way there they were driving a little bit too fast to the point where Tyria had accidentally swerved and crashed into a tree that was located in the Ocala National Forest. The engine of the car was flooded and the carburetor was busted so the car would not start back up but since this was a stolen car the girls couldn't call the police or tell anyone to help them so instead they just took the license plate and ran away. But when the girls ran off with this license plate a witness had actually watched them run off and it was the same witness that had reported this car accident to the police and so since Since this witness had saw both of these girls run off, they were able to actually give police sketches as to what these girls looked like. So when the police got to the crash site, they noticed that the car license plate was gone and since these two police sketches were of two women, they also, which I thought was very interesting, The police officer had sat in the driver's seat and indicated how tall one of the women were based upon how close their seat was to the pedals. And so I thought that was very interesting. So not only were they able to get two facial depictions, but they were also able to give a roundabout height of these two girls. When they checked through the car, they found that when they ran the VIN number of the car, they ended up finding out that this car belonged to a missing person named Peter Sims. They did a search of the car and found that all of Peter's receipt books and cash were gone. But in the car, however, as I said, Tyria and Eileen just sort of fled the scene. They just took the license plate and ran. But when they were looking around in the car, that is when they found a bunch of pawn receipts, uh, receipts from pawn shops. And so they thought that this was very, very interesting. So they kept these receipts because they thought that maybe it may be very um, helpful in the future. 
So they take the car in for forensic testing and they end up finding a palm print on the driver's side handle, but they weren't able to really figure out whose fingerprints these were. And so again, the police were just left at another dead end. But unfortunately, as the police were trying to figure out who this killer was or where Peter Sims was, that is unfortunately when Eileen would kill again. On July 30th of 1990, that is when Eileen Warrenos was picked up by 50-year-old salesman Troy Burris. Troy was a salesman traveling from Ormond Beach for a delivery and was returning back to Daytona Beach and on his way back to Daytona, that is where he picked Eileen up from the I-75 highway. Eileen and Troy then went through Eileen's typical routine. They drove to a secluded area and then minutes later, that is when Eileen went around to the driver's side and shot him in the head twice. Troy's body was found five days later in his truck with a bunch of his belongings missing. And then on September 12th of 1990, this is when Aileen was picked up by her sixth victim and that was 56-year-old retired police officer Charles Humphreys. And so Aileen went through her usual routine and shot Charles, but in this particular instance, when the police discovered Charles's body, he was not found in his truck or even miles away. His body was discovered only a couple of feet away from the truck with the driver's side door open. And so it was assumed because as I said with Troy, uh, Eileen had only shot him twice in the head. So it is assumed that possibly she was trying to less the amount of shots she gave her victims. And in this case, she may have only shot Charles once before Charles had survived that shot and attempted to flee out of the car before Eileen shot him a couple of more times. In the fall of 1990, the police really started to look at the similarities in all of these specific cases and try to create a link to them in order to stop the person of whoever is doing this because it's not a common instance that you find a abandoned car with a bunch of the belongings missing and then find the body a couple miles away with the same exact damage with gunshots to the head. There were just a lot of similarities in these specific cases and they were all in the Daytona Beach area. So the police started to take these cases and attempt in finding similarities in that maybe this was the work of a serial killer. Maybe the same person committed all six of these crimes. So as I said earlier, in Peterson's car, they found a bunch of pawn shop receipts they also found another pawn shop ticket for a radar detector and a 35mm camera which was stolen from Richard Mallory's car back in May. And so they take Richard's case, they take David's case, and they find that they were both shot in the head, they were both in a secluded area, and they were both found dead in or near their cars. They also noted that all of the victims of these crimes all had the same similar appearance as well. They were all middle-aged white men who drove nice cars and were shot in the head with a small caliber weapon multiple times and at close range. They were all found with either stolen cars or stolen 
stolen items, which they assume to be pawned off due to these receipts indicating a financial motive. And then in December of 1990, the police unfortunately were not quick enough to their findings and Eileen killed once again. Eileen would then take her seventh victim, and this was 62-year-old Walter Gino Antonio. His body was found in a forest where he was shot four times in the back of the head with a small caliber weapon and his car stolen. His car, however, was found five days later near Daytona Beach. And so when investigating the car, it's important to note that um, Walter was actually a reserve deputy sheriff. And so some of his sheriff items were gone, such as his flashlights and handcuffs. And so with these crimes continuing to happen and with the similarities in each of these crimes, they're assuming that this is coming from the same exact person. Now, the only lead that they really had on the case was of Peter Sims case, because although Peter's body, even to this point, was not discovered, they still used Peter's case as leverage to really figure out who was behind all of these crimes. And they know that whoever did these crimes were the ones who killed Peter Sims because, as I said, there were a bunch of these pawn receipts found in the vehicle and these pawn receipts were in connection with David Spears and Richard Mallory, who were also killed in the same way as these future victims. So they revisit Peter's case and they notice that there was actually a witness statement given at the time of Peter's car crash and that is when they discover the police sketches that were drawn up of these two women. So they decide to take the police sketch and release it to the public and an hour later after the police sketches were published to the public, that is when they would receive an anonymous caller saying that the two girls in the photos looked like a regular at a bar that they went to called The Last Resort, and the names of these two girls are Eileen Warrenos and Tyria Moore. A little while after that phone call, three more people called in and said that the two girls looked like girls they knew named Eileen and Tyria, who would frequently go into a bar that they went into. Whenever the people spoke about these two girls, they spoke that these two girls tended to be very loud and demanding, and one even described them to be, quote, spoke and acted like men. So since all four of these people that called in said that Eileen and Tyria, they noticed them from local bars, this was perfect for police because they knew that since Eileen and Tyria were frequent at bars, it wasn't going to be that hard to track them down. So the police force then put out a bunch of undercover cops to the local biker bars in town just to kind of keep on the radar looking out for Eileen and Tyria, and on January 9th of 1991, that is when Eileen was found at the bar in Daytona Beach called The Last Resort, which is ironically the same bar that she met Tyria at. She was found by an undercover cop named Mike Joyner, and he said that he saw her playing pool, and she was very loud and demanding. He couldn't really know for sure if it was Eileen until he got a closer look, and he noticed that she had 
had a scar on her forehead to which from uh, Eileen's previous mugshots, Eileen did indeed have a scar on her forehead. So that is when Mike decided to lean into Eileen a little bit because he did not want her to leave the bar and get her out of his sight. And Mike Joyner was also um, like what was considered Eileen's type when it came to her victims. Mike Joyner was a middle-aged old white man and he felt like if he bragged about being wealthy or having lots of money, that would make Eileen more inclined to hang out with him the rest of the night. And this ended up working. Mike approached Eileen at the pool table and he started to brag about all of his money and what he was doing for a living and this led to him and Eileen having a couple of beers together. They just talked and they basically just waited in there until Mike got word that there were police awaiting outside. Mike said that the two of them hung out the rest of the night. He was buying her beers, they were dancing, they were playing pool, until Mike suggested that they go somewhere a little bit more private, to which Eileen agreed. Mike said that he was going to go next door to the motel and get them a room and that he would be right back. So Mike went outside, but he didn't get a motel room and instead he started talking to the police officers that were outside. Mike started to tell the police officers what he knew about Eileen, that he was 100% sure that this woman was Eileen, and they were trying to formulate a plan on how to get Eileen outside so that they could arrest her. So a little while later, Mike went back inside the bar with a motel key and said to Eileen, quote, whenever you're ready to go, we can go. And the two of them had one more round of beers together before leaving the bar, but when they left the bar, immediately Eileen was arrested by the police that were waiting outside. But unfortunately, when the police went inside, Tyria was nowhere to be found. It wasn't until January 10th of 1991, the very next day, Tyria was actually found in Scranton, Pennsylvania, assumingly in, in an attempt to flee getting arrested. So when she was caught, she was brought back to Florida and Tyria was also arrested, but she was given a deal with the police. The police told her that if she could provide as much evidence as she could to prove Eileen guilty of all of these murders, they would give her immunity from prosecution, which basically means she would not be charged with anything and she would not go to jail if she simply just snitched on Eileen. And Tyria agreed to this deal. She said that she would snitch on Eileen if this meant Tyria had absolutely no jail time, and that is when the police started to record. Tyria and Eileen's phone conversations. And there was one specific phone conversation that went on between Eileen and Tyria that was actually shown at court. And I would play the actual phone conversation, but it is very staticky and it's very hard to understand Eileen. And specifically Eileen, it's very hard to understand her. So instead of you listening to the phone conversation, I'm simply just going to read you the transcript. So Tyria is currently on the phone crying to Eileen, telling her that the police are coming to question her and that the police are already questioning her sister and her mom. And Tyria says to Eileen, quote, Lee, they're coming after me. I know they are. Eileen then responds to this and says, quote, no, they're not. Honey, listen, do what you've got to do, okay? 
Tyria says, quote, I'm gonna have to because I might go to jail for something you did. It's not fair. Eileen then goes, quote, okay, just do what you've got to do, Ty. I'm not gonna let you go to jail. Tyria at this point then says over her tears, quote, you don't love me anymore. You don't trust me. I mean, you're gonna watch me go into trouble for something that I didn't do. Eileen then says, quote, I'm not. Listen to me. Quit crying for a second. I have to confess something. Can you hear me? Tyria then says, yes. Then there's a long pause before you can start to hear Eileen starting to cry on the other end, and Tyria just says, quote, why did you do this? Why did you do this? Eileen starts crying, and she says, quote, I don't know. Listen, Ty, I'll probably never see you again. You hear me? Tyria says, yes. Eileen goes, I love you. I love you so much, and if I have to confess everything to keep you out of trouble, I will, okay? Tyria then replies with, quote, okay, well, do it now. Get it over with. Eileen then says over her tears, quote, right at this very moment? Tyria says, yes, get it over with. Eileen says, okay, I will. And then the couple exchanged their goodbyes over their phone. They said, I love you to each other. And immediately after that phone call, Eileen did in fact go to detectives to confess all of her crimes. And on January 16th of 1991, Eileen would go to detectives and confess to all of her crimes. And again, I would show you the clip, but the audio on the clip is very hard to understand if there's not subtitles. And I know a lot of you guys listen to this on audio, so I'm just going to read you the transcript of what Eileen said. Eileen walks into the office and she says, quote, well... I came here to confess the murders, but before I do, I want to be straight up with one thing right here and now. The reason I'm confessing is because there is no other girl. I did it. I did it all, and there is no other girl. And the detective is very thrown off by this because she just literally randomly walked into the office, and now she all of a sudden wants to confess to all of her crimes. So the detective is caught off guard, and he says to her, quote, Okay, so then what you're telling us is that you are voluntarily coming forward to talk to us now? And Eileen then says, quote, Yeah, to let you know that I am the only one who did the killings. When the detective asked if she wanted an attorney present, she said, quote, Well, what is an attorney going to do? I know what I did and I am confessing to what I did. Go ahead and put me in the electric chair. She then goes on to tell the detectives all of the killings and all of the murders that she had committed, but she does say that although she did kill all seven of those men, all seven of those men were in self-defense because they were trying to sexually assault her. She said that the only reason she had a gun on her was not to purposely kill the man, but because it was as self-protection. She said that doing sex work can be very, very dangerous, so she always kept a gun on her for only those reasons. And a criminologist on the case that was reviewing uh, Eileen's confession tapes actually said something quite interesting that I wanted to bring up. So the criminologist talking about Eileen in these clips says, quote, 
She is still trying to perform this role as the victim because I think she is more than familiar with the fact that many sex workers are regularly raped and assaulted by their clients and I think she is trying to garner a little bit of sympathy for herself in doing this. At the end of Eileen's confessions, she tells detectives, quote, I know that I don't want my girlfriend involved because this is why I'm doing this. They've been talking to her parents, detectives and all. She did not kill anyone. And then on January 13th of 1992, a year later, that is when Eileen's trial began. At first, Eileen was actually going to only be charged with the murder of Richard Mallory while the six other men were considered to be in self-defense. The prosecutor, John Turner, argued that with all seven of these murders, they were all murdered in the same exact way. They were all shot at a very close range, and she had dumped the bodies miles away from where the murder had happened, and even stole their cars and pawned off all of their items, indicating there was a financial motive. He also said that with this, it would be considered an overkill. I mentioned it a while earlier, talking about how at a close range, Eileen only needed to shoot a man once or twice if her purpose was to kill them. But in this situation, Eileen had shot these men six times, nine times, clearly showing that there was some sort of passion and enjoyment in what she was doing. And if it was in self-defense, she would not have to shoot them in the head nine times in order to get them off of her. And then the whole phone conversation that I had mentioned earlier between Tyria and Eileen was played at court. And Eileen, when she was hearing this phone conversation, she was just crying the entire time because she was not aware that the phone conversation was being recorded. But as I said, Tyria had made that deal with the police that if they got her to confess in exchange, Tyria would not have to face any jail time. Her girlfriend Tyria also spoke up in court and said that she knew what Eileen was doing, but she never killed anyone. The only thing that she did was pawn off the items, but the only reason she pawned off the items was because she was scared of Eileen. And then on January 27th of 1992, that is when the jury had come to a verdict and found Eileen Warnos guilty for the first degree murder of all six of the men. The only man that she wasn't charged with was Peter Sims because even to this point, his body was never discovered. So she was charged with the first degree murder of all six of the men and was sentenced to death by electric chair. And while she was awaiting the death penalty for the next 12 years, she was put through many interviews and documentaries. She was constantly talking to the press about her story. And there was this one documentary released in 2003 called Life and Death of a Serial Killer and to which Eileen Warrenos appeared in this documentary. And in this interview in particular, it was one of her bigger interviews because it was the interview where she confessed to a lot of the things that she she even lied about on the stand. And at the start of this interview in this documentary, she told the interviewer, Nick, quote, I cannot go into the execution chamber and die in the execution chamber as a liar. And I cannot go to the execution chamber and to be executed under the devil. I have to come clean and cleanse my spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. 
So basically, if you want to watch the whole entire interview, it is available online. But basically, to sum it up, she goes through all of her different murders and just comes clean to absolutely everything. She feels that, you know, if she's going to die and she's already given the death penalty, she might as well be honest and not die a liar. So in this interview, she also comes clean to a lot of the things that she had lied about on the stand such as all of the sexual assault allegations and she said in the interview that when she was picked up by a man she quite quickly knew right then and there that once they got to a secluded area that man was going to die and then she continues by saying quote I'm being real straight up about everything There was no self-defense, and I'm really sorry about what happened. She then goes on to say that she made up a lot of stories on the stand as a way to beat the system, but unfortunately, she couldn't because she got the death penalty. So, at this time, a lot of people thought that Eileen Warrenos was coming clean to all of her crimes as a way to garner sympathy and possibly get taken off of death row. So, the interviewer, Nick, actually brings attention to this, And he says to her, quote, Well, I heard you couldn't stand being on death row after 12 years. And to this, Eileen rolls her eyes and she says, quote, Nick, and this is the last time I'm going to say it. You have to kill Eileen Warnos because she will kill again. And then on October 9th of 2002, Eileen did get the death penalty by lethal injection. People from that day say that Eileen was very loud and disruptive. Before she got her lethal injection, she was screaming about the motherships were ready and that they were about to blast off and that she will be back again one day. And that is the end of today's story as far as the aftermath of all of this. Tyria, to this day, um, she has done a couple of interviews, but she tends to live quite a private life. Tyria got her part of the deal. She did not get any time in jail for pawning off any of the evidence, basically, of these crime scenes. She did not get any jail time for her involvement. She didn't get any jail time for knowing Eileen's murders and not saying anything. She basically just got off scot-free, and again, she has done a couple of interviews, but for the most part, she does live a quiet life. I also believe that she has changed her name since then as well. And the reason why she also doesn't speak to the public as much anymore was because how infuriated everyone was. A lot of people said that it is not fair uh, because Tyria was very involved. And if anything, she was kind of encouraging Eileen to do these things because Eileen knew that if she got these things for Tyria and to give Tyria money, that would make Tyria happy. And so that is what motivated Eileen to continue to murder all of these men. So people were very infuriated that Tyria wasn't getting any sort of jail time or any sort of repercussion for her involvement or anything. So because of this, uh, Tyria then lived a very quiet life. 
And so that is the end of today's case. If you guys found this case interesting, make sure to give it a thumbs up and subscribe if you are watching on YouTube or if you are listening to this on Spotify or Apple, make sure to rate it five stars because it really does help me out a lot. If you want to follow me on any of my socials like my Instagram, that will be linked down in the description of the YouTube video as well as my PO box if you want to send me anything and yeah so i hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day or night make sure to be safe out there um make sure to go outside get some fresh air today get a little bit of sunlight and if there's no sunlight and it's just raining by you curl up with a little book and listen to the rain patter just enjoy the rest of your day take care of yourself and i will see you guys next week bye